You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. This is our sermon series, Experiencing Jesus. We will explore how the gospel embodied creates a culture, a feel, and an experience. The gospel of Jesus says something, and it does something, and both are important. Um, I kind of lost my voice in the first service, so maybe I was a little too excited about it. So maybe I'm going to be a toned down uh, for the second service so I can get through uh, the message here. So we do a membership class here three times, usually three or four times a year. It's usually on a Saturday. It's evolved from doing six weeks in a row to doing a weekend, to now we do a Saturday for about six hours. All right, so we, we felt like that's the best user-friendly, so to speak, membership class that we can uh, do. And I'm sure a lot of you guys have done the membership class before. Uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to jump in. I think we got one coming up at the end of February. February 1st part of March. But in that membership class, we asked two questions. It's kind of like discussion, all right? So periodically throughout the day, we'll ask two questions. The first one is this, is, is what got you here or what brought you here? And so that's where we're just kind of looking at, like, did somebody invite you? Did you uh, find out about us online? Did you, um, you know, watch our online service and decide to show up? Did you, some people showed up because they saw a sign. And it was like, I just thought I'd show up on a Sunday and see what's going on. Or maybe you moved in a neighborhood. So we we, we spent some time talking about like, what is it that got you here? What brought you here? But the second question, we don't necessarily ask right after that question, but throughout the day, we'll stop and ask this question. And this is the question I love. I love hearing this answer is what kept you here? So there's always a reason why we showed up, right? But you know, the reality is we show up for one thing and maybe we're gone the next day, but, but there's a reason that they're in this class and there's something that kept them there. Like, what was it? And when when you hear the answers, what is being revealed in that moment is, is your culture. And that's why I like it so much. It kind of reveals to me these intangibles that's hard to kind of grasp a hold of, but it's, it's, it's felt, it's experienced. And it's interesting, um, uh, the majority of the time when we, when we ask this question, here are the common answers that we hear. Uh, we stayed because it was welcoming. We stayed because it was, it was warm. We stay not, not, everybody laughed in the nine o'clock. They're going, wow, you're lying because it's always freezing in here, right? So warm in the sense of the, uh, you know, like the feel, not necessarily temperature, uh, amen? So thank you for bringing blankets or whatever you have to do to keep warm, uh, especially during the summertime. Or it feels honest, genuine. It feels gracious, inviting. And all of those things are kind of like defining for us these intangibles, this uh, sort of experience, how someone feels walking into their room here. And so this is what I believe convictionally, that I believe that the gospel creates a culture. So the gospel not only says something, which it does, it has content. I'm going to get to that here in just a minute. But it also creates something. It does something in us. And as Ray Ortland says, and, and this is actually a little bitty book, Barb, one of our members here, always makes fun of me. He says, every book you says is little bitty, and I go by and it's like 500 pages. I promise you, this is a little bitty book. It's less than 100, 100 pages. But here's what he says. A church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine and not even realize it. You get what he's after here? that we can unsay by our culture what we say by our doctrine and not even realize it. So we can say we believe in a doctrine of grace, that you're in through Jesus Christ and not an effort or anything you do, but then we can come in here and feel like it's all law. 
And here are a lot of sermons that's about how you don't measure up and how many shoulds and oughts you should be and ought to be doing. Or we could talk about this, this gospel of welcoming, how the, the, the welcoming of the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, to all people, no matter race, color, you know, socioeconomic status, no matter Republican or Democrat, that, that, that the gospel of Jesus is welcoming to all people, but you can come in here and feel like there's groups and cliques, there's insider, outsider. You see what I'm saying? That that's culture. That's a felt experience in this room. And here's where uh, maybe some ask some questions that kind of help you get to the heart of of even the importance of this. I'll give you a few. Is this place where we sprint to when things are at their worst or do we avoid it until we get our act together? Depending on how you answer that question defines what kind of culture we have here, what experience is here. Is this a safe place to confess sin? Not just sins that are acceptable, but even sins that maybe we would deem unacceptable. Do we feel demanding, antagonistic, stressful, right? I don't know, maybe you guys, I, I've been to a church that feels stressful, right? Last question, are you relieved to walk into church on Sunday or do you have to brace yourself to walk into church? Depending how you answer these questions helps define for us a culture an experience, something that's hard to kind of like grab a hold of, but you know it when you walk in here. It's like, yes, I feel this. I love how Ray Orland says this, a church needs to not only pay attention to what it says, but also needs to pay attention and be sensitive to what it is to be, the vibe, the tone, the intangibles of that church. And that's at the heart of what this series is about. We've entitled this series, Experiencing Jesus. And yes, maybe we you know, you know, took one from Henry Blackaby on his old wonderful study called Experiencing God. But at the heart of what we're trying to do with this series over the next few weeks is just to answer two questions. The first question is this, what would it feel like to be in the same room with Jesus? What would the experience be like to sit down with Jesus and be in the same room with Jesus? How would we feel with him? And then the second question is then, how do we embody this? How do we uh, lean into this? How do we become this kind of people? Because here's the thing, and you guys know this, you're really smart people. The church obviously is not the building, the church is you, Right? And so, so if people are experiencing a place that's warm, it's because you're warm. If, a place, if people are experiencing a place that feels gracious, it's because you're gracious. If, a, if people are experiencing a place where it feels welcoming, guess what? It's because you're welcoming. And so we want to identify ways that we see this in our body and celebrate those. And at the same time, we want to lean in and say, hey, we want more of this. We want when someone comes in our midst into this room or into a community group or into a Bible study, we want them to feel like they are in the presence of Jesus. And I think there are some tangible things that we can say uh, to that. So that's the heart here of experiencing Jesus. And Lord willing, this will be uh, something that is encouraging to your soul as well as challenging also uh, to us as a church. And so today, this is all I want to do. I want to do as best I can uh, to try to define for us the gospel. And the reason why this is important is because if we are not 
understanding what the gospel is, if we're not consistent with what we understand the gospel is, then actually we could create a culture that's very anti-gospel. And so I don't wanna make any assumptions, even though a lot of us in this room are church people, they've been in church for a long time, that we all understand the gospel. Because here's the thing, if I took a survey, and I think there's probably... 125 people here. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of guessing a little bit. If I took a survey of all those that are followers of Jesus Christ, been in church for a little bit, and, you, and I said, hey, define for me the gospel. I promise you this. I would get 125 different definitions. Now, there would be some similarities, right? There would be some continuity of all these 125 definitions, but all of them would be somewhat different than one another. And all I want to do today is to do my best to say, when we speak of the gospel, here's what we mean. I want us to have somewhat of a common language so that when you hear me say it or Rick say it or Zach say it or, or any of our leaders say it, hey, this is kind of what's on their mind when they think about the gospel. And some of this is rooted obviously in Mark chapter one and there'll be some other passages that I wanna sprinkle in here. So here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna, I wanna speak of four general statements that are true about the gospel. I'll go through these quickly, so bear with me. Four kind of general statements that are true about the gospel. Then I wanna summarize them in one statement and then I wanna land the plane on talking about how it creates a culture of hope. All right, you with me? So four statements that are true about the gospel, one sentence definition of the gospel, and then how this gospel creates a culture of hope. All right, you ready? Super, like nobody shook their head for crying out loud. Come on, you gotta, you gotta, gotta go with me here a little bit. So if you got a piece of paper, uh, I'd encourage you to jot it down or take some notes in your phone or etch it on your hand if you need to. Here we go. First statement is true about the gospel is this. The gospel is a single message, but it is not simplistic. I'll say that again. The gospel is a single message, but it is not simplistic. Some of you all may have a Bible where at the beginning of Mark, you see this up there. I got a slide for it. The gospel according to Mark. Some of you might have that. Some of you might have it in the other gospels also in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this is what, we have to understand this is the gospel according to Mark. So all that is in the gospel of Mark is the gospel. It's not just the last few pages of the gospel of Mark, even though in each of the gospels, there is an emphasis on the death, burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's a way that every gospel writer, even Mark, because he flies through his gospel. He doesn't even have a, a birth narrative. It's like, boom, adult Jesus is right here, right? And so even though Mark flies through his gospel, he slams the brakes on in the final week of Jesus and slows down a little bit. So yes, every gospel has an emphasis here, but at the same time, the whole of it is the gospel. The, the, the parts at the beginning are not just lead in. They're not just backstory. They're just not, hey, I'm just trying to get you prepped up for the last week. No, all of it in one sense is the gospel. That's why Tim Keller says this, the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade. And yet at the same time, an elephant can swim. It is both simple enough to tell to a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. Indeed, even the angels never tire to look into it. So that's why I say the gospel is a single message, but listen to me, it is not simplistic. We don't move beyond it. 
It's not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the whole deal, right? It's A to Z. First statement. Second statement. The gospel is good news about Jesus. I'll say it again, and I want you to say good news with some gusto. Amen? All right? Here we go. The gospel is, say it, about Jesus. The gospel is not about what you have to do. If that's the gospel, then guess what? It's bad news, <laughs> right? If it starts with what I got to do, then no longer is it good news. I mean, look what Mark says here, even all the way up to verse one, he says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Verse 14, which we just read just a few minutes ago, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming what? The good news of God. The, the word that is used for gospel in verse one is the very same word that's used for good news in verse 14. It's what the, the gospel is. It's, a, it's good news. It's an announcement. Uh, William Tyndale says it like this. This is what that word means. It means good, merry, glad, joyful news that makes a heart glad and makes them sing, dance, and leap for joy. The gospel is good news about what Jesus has done, not what you got to do. And this is not a word that Mark made up, right? This is the this is a word that had been around for a long time and used in, in first century here because what would happen is when a, when a king would send his men off to a war and they would fight the war and if they won the war, the king would send a message to all the towns and they would go and be a gospel herald uh, announcing the good news that the, the king has won and this is what the town gets as a result of that. That's the etymology, so to speak, of this word. And so the gospel at its core is an announcement about what Jesus has done, period. It's not advice, it's not counsel, it's not a good pep talk, right? It's a, an announcement, good news of what Jesus has done. So then, that means this, and this is just a small little pet peeve that I have, not going around and policing people, so don't get freaked out if you say this, but it's just one of my little pet peeves. Then, look, if the gospel is primarily an announcement about what Jesus has done, then listen to me. You can't live the gospel. Amen? Okay, maybe not. Maybe some of you think you can, right? No, Jesus lived the gospel. You can't live it. It's, it's, the gospel at its core is an announcement about what has been done. That's why it's good news. It's like, hallelujah, this is what's been done for me. Yes, you can live out its implications, but you cannot live the gospel that was set aside in central and what Jesus has done. So the, it's good news about what Jesus has done for us. Not advice, not counsel, it's news. It's an announcement. That's number two. Number three, I told you I was gonna go through these really quickly here. The gospel it's good news about Jesus announcing that we have been rescued. Now, some of you are really smart people, and you probably go, well, rescued from what? Well, first of all, you're rescued from yourself. Left to yourself, look, guys, and maybe I'm just speaking of myself here. Maybe you're way better than me. But left to yourself, you are a mess. You destroy relationships. You don't normally, naturally 
based on your, your own spirit, you're bent apart from Jesus Christ. You don't step into things and necessarily always make them better. Sometimes you actually make them worse. And if you would take time to really reflect what's going on in the inside of you, you would recognize that you are not, you're not as you should be, that you're broken, that there's something deeply wrong with you. And so we need rescued from ourselves. And not only do we need rescued from ourselves, but we need rescued from God's coming wrath. And I get it, man. When we hear that, it lands on very unpopular people or not unpopular people. Just it's a message that seems what unpopular just feels weird. It feels like they got this wrathful, angry God that's just waiting to blow up so he can just kind of annihilate human beings. And that is not the way God is presented in the Bible. His wrath is right. It's just, it's pure. It's not like your parents when they blew off the handle. It's a holy wrath. In fact, what the Bible tells us over and over is that actually God has to be provoked to anger. Humanity has to be provoked to love. Anger comes natural, amen? Somebody cuts you off? Are you provoked to love? Are you like oozing out love? Or are you just holding back that finger, right? What is going on inside of you? For most of us, anger comes easy, natural. That is not the case with God. He is long-suffering. He is slow, slow to anger. And at the same time, he is a just God and he hates sin. Look what John says about this in chapter three, one of the famous chapters that we know. Um, At the end of that chapter, listen to what it says. Verse 36, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, listen to this, the wrath of God remains on him. Genesis 3 tells us that humanity sinned and rebelled against God. And when that happened, there was a separation between humanity and God. And that separation is experienced psychologically. We experience guilt, shame, and fear. That separation is experienced socially where relationships are really hard. Probably felt that and experienced that over the course of the holidays. And you probably had the same conversation in your head. Man, they are family. Shouldn't relationships be easy? No, there's a thing called sin. (laughs) And physically, it feels like the, the world itself, nature is, is against you. It feels like even when you're trying to mow your grass or just fix a stinking leaf, leaky faucet in your home, it takes forever. It takes like a, a one-hour job ends up being a six-hour job and you got to go lows 15,000 times. You with me? It's like the elements are working against us. That's what sin has done. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says this, since the garden, we live in a world filled with suffering and disease and poverty and racism and natural disasters and war, aging and death, and all stems from the wrath and curse of God on the world because of our sin. The world is out of joint and we need to be rescued. But the root of our problem is not these horizontal relationships, though they are often the most obvious. It is our vertical relationship with God. All human problems are ultimately symptoms And our separation from God is the cause. The reason for all the misery, all the effects of the curse is that we are not reconciled to God, which leads me to the fourth statement about the gospel. And that is this, the gospel is good news 
about what has been done by Jesus to put right our relationship with God. Becoming a Christian is about a change in status. Becoming a Christian is about a change in status. 1 John 3 says this, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called what? God's children and we are, explanation point. It doesn't say, and we're becoming God's children. It says, no, we are. It's a, it's a change in your status. Later on in that chapter, 1 John 3, verse 14 says, we know that we have what? Say it out loud. Have passed from death to night. Not, not we're passing. No, you're either in Christ or you're not. You're either forgiven or you're not. You are either have eternal life or you don't. You're either a child of God or you're not. Whenever you receive this good news of what Jesus has done for you, in that moment, instantaneously, you're standing before God changes. You are now and forever in Christ. No matter what happens beyond that, you are now and forever in him. What matters most to God is not which sins you have committed or not committed. What matters most to God is your union, your oneness with Jesus. Is your posture, a posture of openness and trust in who Christ is versus self-trust and defensiveness toward God. The gospel is good news about what has been done by Jesus to put right our relationship with God. Those are the four statements. And all these statements are true. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not asking you guys to take these statements home and memorize these or whatever it is. I'm just trying to help you understand that whenever I speak of the gospel, all four of these are there for me. All of these are. This is what's going through my mind. This is kind of sort of the, uh, the, the, the stuff that's in me. All of that is present when I speak and talk about the gospel. Now, the critique of these four statements, which is a fair critique, all right, is that this feels very individualistic. That all four of these statements have to do primarily about my relationship with God and getting my relationship with God right. What about the gospel for the world? What about the kingdom of God where there's a promise that he will renew all things? Because those four statements all seem just about me and God and that's it. And that's the kind of gospel I grew up with. It was all about walking an aisle, praying a prayer. You got your relationship with God down. You've got sort of the, you know, get out of hell free card that you keep in your back pocket so that when you die, you bust that bad boy out. And then you got all of life to live. It's like, well, what goes on? Well, it doesn't matter. You got, you're sealed. You're done. Like you got that taken care of. And so there was never anything about the world, about the kingdom of God, about the renewal of all things. So that is a fair critique and I would also say, but it has to start somewhere. And where it starts is our vertical relationship with God. That's why Peter summarized the gospel in such a short little sentence in verse 18 of chapter one. This is what he says. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That we, he might bring you to God. That's the first problem that has to be settled. J.I. Packer, an older theologian, says it like this. The gospel does bring us solutions to these problems of suffering, racism, and injustice, 
but it does so by first solving the deepest of all human problems, the problem of humanity's relationship with his maker. And unless we make it plain that the solution of these former problems depend on the settling of the latter one, we are misrepresenting the message and becoming false witnesses of God. Now, I know he's J.R. Packer, and I feel very weird saying this, all right? So uh, maybe corrected if I see him in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know if I would say false witnesses. I may nuance that a little bit and say maybe what we've done is emphasize one aspect of the gospel at the expense of another. And so what we try to do here, right? And I'm summarizing the gospel in one sentence, all right? What we try to do here is try to hold three aspects of the gospel and keep them as one. So there's one gospel, one message, and three aspects. So think of a diamond, all right? Think of a diamond. So when you're judging the beauty of a diamond, what are the three C's? Say it out loud. We can do this. Clarity. Somebody say clarity, right? Okay, cool. Cut. Yeah, and what's the last one? Color. Thank you, because the reason why I did that is because I forgot. All right, so three of them, right? So, so it's all the same diamond. Are you following me? It's not three different diamonds. You're looking at the same trying to make a diamond here. It's kind of a little hard, but you're trying to use a diamond here, but you're looking at it from three different aspects of clarity, color, and, and uh, cut, right? And you're looking at the beauty of it from those three different aspects. Same thing with the gospel. So kingdom, cross, grace. The gospel is life with God has been made available. Life with God is kingdom language. Kingdom language, what, is, what does life look like when God's in charge? What does your marriage look like when God's in charge? What does your relationships look like when God's in charge? What's a society look like when God's in charge? What's your neighborhood look like when God's in charge? What's your family look like when God's in charge? That's kingdom language. And I would put before you, if our gospel does not have something to say about the kingdom, then we're missing the gospel because that's what Jesus talked about all the time. This is where we address issues of poor, race, injustice, systemic racism. I'm not getting away from the gospel when I talk about it. That's kingdom language, guys. That's the, the kingdom aspect of the gospel that we have to hold in tension with the other two. And so it, I'm getting on a little, little, little thing. I'm just going to go move on here. Cutting it off. Let's go to the second. So whole, whole gospel is life with God made available through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is kind of like a, a shorthand for the whole of Jesus's life. His life, his, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that has given us forgiveness of sins and new life a new want, a new desire, a new heart that wants to follow after and submit under the rule and reign of Jesus. If I don't have the cross, I never want to be in the kingdom. Are you following me? Look, there's no kingdom without the cross because my bent is reject the kingdom and set up a little bitty crown on my head and say, hey, I'm going to call the shots. I'm amazing and I'm awesome, right? And that got us in a huge mess. All right, there you go. That's my little fifth grade voice. Moving on here. And so, uh, yeah, the whole gospel good news of life with God made available through the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's received as a gift of God's grace. You can't earn it. Got to get one amen. You cannot earn this. Amen. If it was left to me to earn this gospel, then I would be a massive failure or really self-righteous. 
It's a gift from God. He has done all the work, and our posture is just this, receiving it. Kingdom, cross, grace, each aspect is absolutely important. And there may be seasons, there may be even sermons where we emphasize one aspect, but we never want to do it at the expense of the other two. And our goal here isn't to proudly think, oh, wow, we've tried to figure it out. After 2,000 plus years of understanding the gospel, here comes Sojourn Church, and they finally figured it out. No, that is not at all what I'm trying to say. What we're trying to do is humbly put before you saying, look, we're going to do our best to try to keep these together because we think all three are really important when we talk about the gospel. The gospel of God, God's kingdom, it quiets our fears and tells us there's a place where we're safe. The gospel of God's cross removes all of our guilt and tells us that Jesus' perfect record belongs to us. The gospel of God's grace covers our shame, telling us that we're more loved and more important than we could ever hope and understand. And as this message gets in us, and as we rest in this message, as we reflect on this message, as this message does a work in our lives, then it creates a culture. It creates a culture of honesty. Because God's freed us from posing and hiding and faking it to where we can be honest with ourselves honest with God, and honest with one another. It creates a culture of hospitality where everyone's welcome. It's what got Jesus killed, isn't it? Because he welcomed everybody. And the religious leaders hated it. So we should have the same posture also, at least should be felt here. But no matter if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Gay, straight, lesbian, questioning, transgender, agnostic, atheist. You're welcomed here. It also creates a culture of grace. Where maybe Monday to Saturday, you're on that performance treadmill, right? Got to do a good job for my work. Got to do a good job for my work. Got to keep doing it. Got to keep working. Got to keep working. My prayer, and I don't know if we do this well, maybe we do, maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to figure it out as we kind of do membership classes and take surveys. I don't want you to jump on another treadmill on Sundays, say, oh, I gotta, I gotta perform with God, I gotta make him happy, all right? I want you to be able to come into this space and take a deep breath and breathe some grace in. And you're loved, pressure's off, your standing with God is not built upon how spiritual you were this past week or how holy you were or whether you lost your temper or not, but it's built upon the acceptance and kindness in the work of Jesus. And then lastly, and I'll do this really quickly here, I think it cultivates a culture of hope. If you go home and read Mark chapter 10, there's a little story in there real quickly. 
about a rich young man who's pretty moral and seems like a good guy, came to Jesus, want to know how to have eternal life. They have a conversation about the law, back and forth, back and forth. Jesus eventually says, hey, go and sell everything you have and then come back to me. And the guy turned around and walked away because he loved his wealth way too much. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said this. He said, it's really, really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were like, what? I mean, it's my translation, but what? What are you talking about? The reason why they say that is because in their minds, when someone's wealthy, they're blessed by God. So there's a wealthy guy that walks away from Jesus, and he turns to us and says, like, look, it's hard for a wealthy person to get in the kingdom of God. And then they go, then who can get in? Jesus says this, verse 27, looking at them, he said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. That's hope. All things are possible with God. All things. It doesn't mean that we don't name pain and difficulty and hardship but there's a different kind of posture we have to where we do believe that all things are possible with God. I love what Wendell Berry says in a little poem. I think it's called a poem of place and, and um, um, hope. I think it's what it's called, but he says this, and guys, I, I agree with this, man. I, I resonate fully with this. I feel like it's easier for me to be really cynical these days than it is to be hopeful. It's hard to have hope. It takes work to have hope. It's harder as you grow old. And many of you in this room would say amen to that because you have a life of experience where you hope for something and it didn't come through or you prayed for something and it didn't happen. And when, when we understand and get this in us more, this, this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it does create a culture of hope where we do believe that because all things are possible with God, no matter how dark, no matter how dismal, no matter, no matter how impossible it may seem, there's still a spirit of yes, <laughs> he can. Yes, he can. So what would this feel like, Lyle? What would a culture of hope feel like? Well, maybe you would hear less of you should and you ought and more we can. Well, that sounds really like, you know, humanistic. No, 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 no. The spirit of God dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? So yes, God is doing it in and through you. And so maybe we hear less of, wow, this is what you should be doing and this is what you ought to be doing and hear more of like, you can, you can change. This situation can change. You can be different. Yes, I... There's a place for shoulds and oughts. There's a place for exhortation, right? But the writer of Hebrews does say that we are to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Paul writes in Romans, that's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I don't know about you, but shoulds and oughts have not worked really well for me. So what if this year... We hear less of how we fall short of God's standards, and maybe we hear more 
of how God has opened up his treasures and goodness in Jesus to the undeserving, the stragglers, and this is a word I made up, the never measure uppers, (laughs) the exhausted. Hope feels like no matter where I am, it can be different. That's what I want you to experience here, week in and week out. It can be different. Let's pray. So maybe right now, just for a few minutes, maybe we just pray some hopeful prayers. Maybe there's a place where you want God to show up. And I know maybe you've asked it a million times. We'll do it a millionth and oneth time. Maybe there's a place in your life where you want God to do something. Maybe you just need God to help you see that you can change. Things can be different. So let's just take a few minutes here and pray some hopeful prayers. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.